Our primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Would you listen with me now for the word of the Lord? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our Father by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of months ago, uh, there was the final question on the game show Jeopardy. Paul's letter to them is the New Testament epistle with the most Old Testament quotations. One contestant answered, what are the Romans? Sorry, wrong answer. The other said, what are the Hebrews? Correct. Except it wasn't. Paul was not the author of the Hebrews. And so the only thing that Twitter is really good for these days, correcting misinformation, it just instantly lit up. Jeopardy was dead wrong about this. But what I thought was really funny, other than my Presbyterian colleagues actually agreeing on like a, a big issue for once, was that like CNN or some other like mainstream media outlet actually tried to report on this with like a two sides approach. And so it was like Jeopardy encounters controversy because some Christians say that Hebrews wasn't written by Paul. No, 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 no Christians with any theological education at all, say Hebrews is written by Paul. I think they were able to find like one pastor who said something to the effect of like, at some point in history, some Christians may have thought Hebrews was written by Paul. And I was like, okay, that just sums up all our media like in a nutshell right now. And then I thought, we should do a sermon series on Hebrews because a painstakingly crafted six-month series is an appropriate amount of effort in order to correct one trivia question. And those of you who know me are like, no, no, he's not joking. So when people ask like, well, why are y'all doing Hebrews? You can be like, Jeopardy. So let's get it out of the way. If Paul didn't write Hebrews, who did? Well, technically, we don't know. Hebrews is a completely anonymous book where the author does not disclose himself, nor does anyone in the early church ascribe authorship to it. However, the content of Hebrews was so good that it became widely copied and honored throughout the churches in the first century. And despite not knowing the name of the authors, scholars today do believe we have quite a bit of information about their background. We know that the author was incredibly well-educated, mastering not only Koine Greek, which was the lingua franca of the time in the first century, but he was also fluent in classical Greek as well. 
The author of Hebrews was well-versed in Greek philosophy, Jewish theology, and perhaps two different versions of Jewish scriptures, aka two different versions of the Old Testament. This has led scholars to believe that the author was educated in the academic center of the Roman world, Alexandria, which would have been the most likely place, if not the only place, to produce such a refined intellect. Basically, if we could say that the Apostle Paul was kind of Ivy League level in his genius, the author of Hebrews is Oxford level. In fact, the sophistication of Hebrews in some ways makes it a little difficult to study. It uses 169 Greek words that are found nowhere else in the Bible, including 10 words that are found nowhere else in all of Greek literature until Hebrews is written. It employs alliteration, wordplay, and it harnesses an array of advanced Greek rhetorical styles. In short, Hebrews is a masterwork in the New Testament. It is a literary work without peer. So oddly enough, all of this means that while for most of Christian history, we did not know who the author of Hebrew was, modern scholarship has given us a very likely candidate. And his name is Apollos. Who's Apollos? Well, this pastor and teacher is actually referenced three times in the New Testament. And apart from being identified as a native of none other than Alexandria, the Apostle Paul praises him as a man of eloquence and one who is competent in the scriptures. And though we do not know much about him, it is clear by his reference in 1 Corinthians and Titus that he was one of the most influential leaders in the early church. In light of all these facts, he is the only historical figure that we are aware of that who would have been even capable of writing Hebrews. So, Jeopardy writers, if you are listening, you can put this down for New Testament for 500. But it really doesn't matter the author behind Hebrews so much as the intent behind Hebrews. This is in part because Hebrews is not a letter the way that Paul's letters are. It's not addressed to a specific congregation over specific concerns and issues. He is writing a sermon. It's actually meant to be read and passionately in its whole sitting all at once. In fact, this is probably the only true sermon in the New Testament. And so people then didn't need to know who the author was in order to know that the message that the author was communicating was profound. And without us even understanding the point of Hebrews yet, you can instantly begin to feel the powerful rhetoric as Apollos begins with this poetic and panoramic view of Christianity and its story. So it also works pretty perfect for Epiphany Sunday. So let's jump in at verse one. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Nearly all cultures throughout human history have believed that the divine is communicating to us in some way, or at least we hope so. Different religions then functioned as different expressions of that hope in divine communication. And so while there's always been atheists and deists throughout history that thought the divine was not speaking at all, it was typically a rarely a question of if the divine was speaking, 
rather than a question of, well, how much and through what medium? The question is still asked just as much today. Does God, Allah, Jehovah, Vishnu, the Devas, Gaia speak in a way that we can hear? And if so, how can we hear? And how many of those mediums actually work? Like, can, can I listen to myself? Does that, does that do it? Do, do I need some divination tools, whatever those are? Or do I, I need a, a religious authority or institution to help me communicate. I mean, maybe I, I need to blend some of those up. Maybe I, if I can just get, you know, uh, 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 a different religion here and another one over there and we can put it all together, maybe that will get me the divine. But you know, even though if people aren't sure about the medium of communication, for some reason deep down, almost all of us believe that the divine is speaking in some way, or at least we hope. Apollos tells us that long ago, at least 1,500 years before himself, God indeed speak. But how much and through what medium? Well, the medium was the prophets, people appointed by God to carry some message to other people. And there's lots of prophets in the Bible, although probably not as many as we feel, given how long the history of the Hebrews was. But Apollos doesn't spend any time yet naming the ways in which God spoke, but rather only on the clarity and frequency of God speaking. And what I'm about to point out, this might surprise some of us. Apollos uses this Greek word polymeros. Its best modern rendering is pieces or fragments. It's what, in what we know as the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, Apollos is saying that God only spoke in fragments. Now, if you've ever discovered a, a torn letter or a, a torn receipt in the bottom of your car, you know that it's not hard to make out some of the words and the numbers. And, and to make sense of them, sometimes we can put them all back together, but other times, sometimes it feels impossible. And I know this is what some of us feel as well when we're reading the Old Testament. Sometimes it, it, it totally makes sense. And then other times it feels a, a, a little confusing. And other times I'm like, what is the point? And then other times I'm like, oh my gosh, this is messed up. So if the Old Testament was supposed to show who God was, and it did so sufficiently, said Apollos, Apollos is also saying that sometimes it was like trying to read a divine report that had been put through the shredder of human error and sin and prejudice. And so if I'm here this morning, and that's how I feel about the Old Testament, I just want you to know that that's okay to feel. You don't lack faith for being confused that God seems to be a little more wrathful than you think is appropriate. You're not a bad Christian for not loving Leviticus. And look, I don't even think the basic pumpkin spice lattes girls are doing Deuteronomy in their Christian girl autumn, which... By the way, there was apparently Hot Girl Summer and then Christian Girl Autumn. I did, I'm not making this up. So now it's like pagan goth winter. I don't know. But now, Apollo says, something has dramatically changed. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
Now, the phrase last days is not meant to refer so much to the length of time, but rather the, the, the characteristics of this time. In contrast to long ago, the last days are now. So what's the difference between then and now? God is speaking differently. God is speaking through his son, who is this son. Well, you might say Jesus. And while that's not wrong, that's not totally correct either. And Apollos is a careful theologian. Jesus is the name given to God born in a human body about 65 years before Hebrews was written. Jesus as a human has a beginning. The son, however, which Apollos introduces him as, has no beginning. Verse two reads that the son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the worlds. You see, the son, the Christ, the redeemer, or if you read the gospel of John, what John calls the word has always existed. God, the son has always been part of the Trinity, the triune God. That is why he says in verse two that God, the father created the world through God, the son, the creation of the cosmos was a cooperative communal act by the Trinity. It is only then in recorded history that God the Son leaves the perfect community of the Trinity and is incarnated in humanity as the person Jesus to work the will of the Trinity. So why does Apollo start with this cosmic Trinitarian description of God the Son before God the Son became Jesus? Because he wants us to understand how profound the shift in God speaking from long ago to God speaking in these last days really is. Verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Apollos quite beautifully He's trying the best he can to explain what cannot ever be perfectly explained. That in the human Jesus, God walked among us. If God was the sun, then Jesus was the ray. If God was the, the metal stamp, then Jesus is the perfectly minted image on the coin. And somehow, that same speech that keeps the fabric of the universe together is the same that spoke to poor Jewish peasants by the Sea of Galilee. To encounter Jesus is to encounter God. If this is true, then what does that mean? It means our age-old question, our age-old hope of every culture of every generation finds an answer. God is not speaking in fragments anymore, a truth that has been shredded and torn by human error and sin and prejudice. No, through Jesus, God speaks with consistent clarity. Nor is God speaking anymore through intermediaries, prophets and sages and religious institutions who share all the fallibility of human sin. No, through Jesus, God speaks directly to the world. To hear from Jesus is to hear from God. And if this is true, 
This means for the atheist and the deist, if you are open-minded enough to the possibility of God existing, there is good reason to believe that God is not aloof or distant or indifferent. If this is true, this means that I am not left alone to my own devices to figure out what God is like or what God wants from me. And if this is true, then it means there's no point in blending religions and spiritualities like I was when I was 11 making a Frankenstein soda at Taco Bell. You, you just don't need to put lemonade and Dr. Pepper together, okay? Now, in the last line of our reading, it's the most cryptic, but it really clues us into the original context of Hebrews, the original reason why this sermon was given in the first place. End of verse 3, on to verse 4. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Scholars believe that Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians in Rome around 64 to 69 AD. We can be that specific with the dating because there is no mention of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem being destroyed, which happened in 70 AD, and because of the unique problem that the Hebrews are likely experiencing. Jewish Christians, after being expelled from Rome 15 years earlier for being Jews, have been allowed to return under Emperor Nero. However, in 64 AD, Nero is beginning to persecute Jewish Christians again, not this time for being Jewish, but for being Christian. And so these Jewish Christians begin to wonder aloud, is worshiping Jesus really worth it? I mean, sure, Jesus is great, but maybe we can just focus our prayers and our veneration on angels instead. And you might think, well, that seems like an odd alternative to Jesus. But in the first century, angels in Jewish theology had become these important, almost semi-divine figures. And besides, there are traditions in Christianity today that will still spend more time praying to patron saints than they do to God. Ironically, then and now, there has always been a religious impulse to downgrade the importance of Jesus. But what is most likely motivating this potential pivot away from Jesus and back towards the traditions of their previous Jewish faith and angel veneration isn't a spiritual conviction, but a personal anxiety. Those Jewish Christians in Rome aren't thinking, let's go back to our old identity because, well, we believe it, no, it's rather, let's go back to identifying more with being Jewish because we'll be safe. You see, in the first century, Judaism was a protected and respectable religion under Roman law. If you identified as Jewish, you could actually practice your religion freely. Christianity, on the other hand, was Nero's new scapegoat and was beginning to be viewed as illegal and dangerous as a cult. For these Jewish Christians, many of whom were educated and middle class, they understandably wanted to avoid the persecution that Nero was stirring up against them. Unlike the poor peasants and slaves joining Christianity at this time, these kind of Christians had a lot to lose. So here, Apollos is speaking as one who has been raised his whole life in Judaism to others who have been raised their whole lives in Judaism. And in verse 4, 
Apollos is talking about the cross of Christ, the death of Jesus, but Apollos is using the temple language of Judaism. He identifies Jesus' death on the cross as synonymous with, quote, purification for sins, which is a very Jewish phrase and also makes him superior to angels in every way. It's as if in this very preamble of Hebrews, Apollos wants to make it clear to encounter Jesus is not simply to encounter God. To hear from Jesus is not simply to hear from God. The purification, the forgiveness from sins accomplished by Jesus is the completion of every religious rite they have ever been raised with. To be forgiven by Jesus is to be forgiven by God. And if that is true, then every other method they may ever want to hope to return to is now inadequate. If Jesus is truly the fulfillment of their hopes, why turn back now? In our modern pluralistic culture today, there is a reluctance to say openly the extent to which God is revealed in Jesus. Theologians have called this the scandal of particularity. How might we describe the scandal of particularity? To encounter Jesus is to encounter God. To hear from Jesus is to hear from God. To be forgiven by Jesus is to be forgiven by God. This can scandalize a culture that prides itself on diversity and inclusion, especially if we find ourselves working and socializing more in progressive circles, and I know many of us do. There can be sometimes a lot of pressure to downplay the particularity of Jesus. Maybe we can identify with something a little more safer, something a little more respectable to the social powers that be. But the scandal of particularity has always been part of the story of God's people, even in the fragments long ago. In our first reading today, Moses, the very first prophet of Judaism, is told by God to lead the liberation of Moses' enslaved people from the Egyptian empire. But Moses is afraid. He's not only afraid of the Egyptian empire, but also of his own people. Moses protests to God, look, if they ask me who you are, I mean, who do I even say? After all, the Hebrew people have been living in an empire with as many as 1,400 different deities. And that culture had inevitably been foisted upon them by their oppressors. And yet God responds to Moses in verse 14 with a very particular, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And then this particularity is connected to the personal in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. In other words, God says, I am a particular God. 
in a personal relationship with people. That kind of God would scandalize Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire. But that is precisely the kind of God that would liberate the Hebrew people from those powers. Friends, hear this good news. To be liberated from the powers of sin and death, we have the same particular God who offers a personal relationship with us. Who is that same God? The one whom we encounter, the one whom we hear, the one who we are forgiven by, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I never want to cut off their applause. I loved it. And I will say, the first time I met Jim, I just called him Banjo. And that is what I have called him. It blesses your West Virginia heart, doesn't it? Does it does so much. All right, Colin, we've got some theologians in the audience today. How does one balance the dangers of supersessionism with the way Hebrews 1 calls Hebrew scriptures as fragments? One, great pronunciation of supersessionism, because I mispronounce it most of the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. okay, so supersessionism is basically this view that like, okay, God is just totally done with Israel, God is done with Judaism, God has not, like God is just like, it, it, God's cast it aside, right? And this is a, somewhat of a dangerous view, right? Because if you're basically saying like, well, God is done with all of Judaism, God has like nothing to do with like the Hebrew scriptures, it just puts us in a lot of places. Anti-Semitism is one place that it, it can potentially lead to. Um, so there's a, a couple ways to balance that. One is to acknowledge that assuming, uh, well, we know the author is Jewish himself, right? So he's not disparaging his own Jewish faith. This is also a time where it's uh, differentiation is important. So it's not saying these people are bad or what they believe is bad or God's done with them, but they're trying to say like God is doing a new thing. The third part is, and I, I still haven't got a, a formal view myself on this in Hebrews about like, well, what is the nature of the Old Testament being fragments? But the key part for, for Apollos, where I'm just going to assume generally that Apollos is the author here. Apollos is trying to say, however you look at the Old Testament, whether you think it is great, whether you don't like it, whether you're confused, whether you love it, right? He's like, whatever you think, what God is doing in Jesus is so amazing and so much more. And so he, it actually allows for a multiplicity of views on how you approach the Old Testament, um, but he's basically doing a contrast, the, the, the amazing work of Christ in his incarnation. There is a theory that Priscilla wrote Hebrews, which would explain the anonymity, any thoughts on this? Yes, so if Apollos didn't write it, I think, I think right now there's an overwhelming case that Apollos is the author. However, if it's not Apollos, it's a woman. And the reason I say that is because basically Apollos is like the only candidate that we know of in history that could really write it, because uh, the educational chops to write Hebrews are just insane. But you can imagine a scenario that if it's not Apollos, it's some like brilliant secret genius woman who, who basically because of the time doesn't want to put her name on it and so it could be someone like Priscilla. So it's basically either Apollos or a genius woman and it's probably no other option. But right now it's most likely Apollos. But Priscilla is quite, and, and Phoebe as well has also been put up there. These are both um, women who were, were very, uh, they were educated, they were intellectuals. Phoebe explains Romans, which if you can explain Romans, you're really smart. So uh, that is a possibility as well. And why do you think that 
a there you know nobody has a name on it and two that we're so curious about who wrote it yeah we always want to know who like mm -hmm. writes things it's it's a weird i think it's a weird modern western fascination like for us like we gotta know the author and for some reason that's really important for us and in that time <coughs> excuse me it just wasn't as important. And I think Apollos, and I'm just hoping that the, the, the bro is humble. I haven't read that like we lost it. I think we really just, he really did not put it on there. Either because people either knew him so well, um, or he's just like, I just want this, I just want the message. I'm not concerned with my name. Um, and so I think that's why you actually see in a lot of places in the New Testament where we have later ascribed names to different authors when the actual, the author doesn't actually say who they are. Um, and we've done that in a lot of places in the New Testament actually. Interesting. So there are more questions, but we're out of time. And if you have any more questions, you want to text in questions because you're watching this later, uh, Colin will answer them tomorrow on Facebook Live on uh, Parkside. Make sure you follow us. Thanks, Sam.